Hello again, friends, and welcome to Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. This is the October 2015 episode, our Back to School special. 25,000 students, 49 schools, about 6,000 employees, 2,602 of them teachers, a total budget of $504 million. Those are some of the defining statistics of the Madison Metropolitan School District. And when it comes time to spending that $504 million, maintaining those 49 schools and teaching those 25,000 students, one of those 6,000 employees has the greatest responsibility of all. That, of course, is the Madison School District Superintendent, Jen Cheatham, now entering her third year at the helm. We welcome Jen Cheatham to this special episode of Access City Hall. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's the first week of October. Has that new school year smell worn <laughs> off, or do you still have an excitement of, of a new year? I still have it. I mean, it still feels like we're fresh into the new year. Um, we're having a good year so far, a really good year. I mean, it feels great to be it's starting my third year. How do you know it's a good year so well, far? Well, it's just the, the routines that we put into place over the last uh, couple of years um, are really taking hold. It just feels like... Um, yeah, this, this new, more disciplined way of working that we've been trying to uh, institutionalize over the last couple of years, it's, it's real. And uh, so it just feels great to be starting a year where we're all speaking the same language, the focus is clear, um, the work is hard. You know, it's good work. It's, it's hard. We'll get to the issue of whether or not all the students in the school district speaking the same language because yeah. <laughs> that's a very big issue and true. it's not entirely true that they're all speaking the same language so we're, we're going to get to literally, English as, yeah. literally. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit but let's, let's start with the big picture uh, the district recently released its second annual report tracking certain educational benchmarks of, of reading proficiency, math proficiency, graduation what are your major takeaways from that report? Um, my major takeaways are that the the work that we've begun to um, implement all captured in our strategic framework, which is our improvement plan as a district, is not only taking hold, but starting to produce positive results for students. Um, it's not perfect, right? Not everything is going in the direction that we want it to, but, but most indicators are pointing um, uh, in a positive direction, which gives us confidence that the direction is the right one. Elementary results in particular stand out as, as being incredibly good. I mean, we've made about 10% uh, improvement on reading and math in two years um, at elementary. I mean, it's, it's almost unheard of. I mean, it's really solid, strong progress at the elementary level that is um, fairly consistent across groups of students. Um, we're seeing on the other end of the spectrum positive results when it comes to graduation rates. Um, you know, we still have a long way to go, but the fact that um, two of our comprehensive high schools saw dramatic gains when it comes to African-American student graduation rates, which, as you know, has been a, a pain, a deep pain point for us um, as a school district. Um, La Folla in particular, 75% graduation rate for African-American students. Um, this is, these are positive signs that we're moving in the right direction. When you say 10% gain in elementary school reading, what, what does that actually measure? That's specifically fifth grade reading, which is the benchmark that we measure. It's a kind of cumulative benchmark of uh, how students perform in their elementary years. Um, so the way that we measure the strategic framework is, is something we actually um, 
is a way that we would love to see legislators and others uh, start to think about accountability. Uh, we choose specific benchmark grades to show whether or not our students are on the pathway to graduation. So we look at um, reading at the end of second grade. We look at literacy and mathematics at the end of fifth grade literacy and mathematics at the end of eighth grade, ninth grade uh, on track, meaning the, we want to lower the percentage of students getting Fs in ninth grade because we know that has such a high correlation to graduation rates. We look at 11th grade GPA um, because GPA has, it's a, uh, has a strong research base um, that helps us. Uh, students who have high GPAs, a 3.0 or higher, um, are shown to do better in college. Um, it's a much better indicator than something like the ACT and, of course, graduation rates. So we've selected these uh, strategic benchmarks that show whether or not our students are progressing um, on the way to graduation. As George W. Bush would say, is our students learning? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, to the extent that these benchmarks show progress, do you know what accounts for that? Um, there's no one thing that accounts for it. I mean, it is just, uh, it's just not how it works um, in education. The strategic framework is about, um, I mean, it's very targeted, but it's about uh, a multi-pronged effort to um, address uh, student achievement, to provide students with what they need to be successful, all the way from um, stronger, uh, a stronger, more coherent approach to curriculum and instruction across all of our schools, which includes our um, stronger approaches to serving special groups like English language learners, students with, with disabilities. Um, it includes uh, uh, the work that we're doing at the high school level to make the high school experience more relevant and introduce students to um, career pathways and options after high school. This is what kids, keeps kids engaged, especially at the secondary level. It includes the work that we're doing with family engagement, which we know is a critical ingredient to success for kids. Um, it includes the work that we're doing to better support our employees so they can do their best work through not just professional development, but better induction programs, um, uh, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach to creating a more coherent approach to supporting every child in the classroom. So I can't point to any one thing. It's all of those things in combination. See, if you want a quick and easy way to reduce Fs and increase graduation, you could just get rid of algebra. I know, right? You could. <laughs> or you could, uh, you know, start inflating grades. We don't want that either. No, get rid of <laughs> algebra would really help. Um, okay, so, so you focus naturally on, on the progress, but there are still significant racial achievement gaps. Absolutely. Uh, the numbers are, are really... Staggering. Uh, there's, there's a 40 to 50 percent difference in attaining those benchmarks, ba uh, ra racial difference. In, in third grade, 13 percent of the blacks have re black students have reading proficiency. 15 percent in fifth grade, 9 percent in eighth grade. Yeah. For white students, it's 59, 68, and 59 percent. That's a that's a 40 to 50 percent difference. Uh, what accounts for that? Oh, my goodness. Um, first of all, we agree. I mean, it is, um, it is abysmal, and it's supremely frustrating, right? We're making progress, but it just, it's not fast enough. Um, I think it, uh, it is a reflection of, um, of kind of like, how do I put this? I would, I'm going to use some strong terms. I think it's a, it's reflective of systemic oppression. 
um, that exists, not just here in the Madison community, but um, across our country. Um, it is a reflection of generations of families not getting the opportunities they need to be um, to be successful and to have uh, the social mobility to be um, to, to have their hopes and dreams come true. It, it is so much more than the education system, and we take full responsibility for our part. Um, the strategic framework, uh, which I know I keep referencing, but it is what anchors all of the work that we do, um, was created with uh, um, systemic barriers that, that prevent our students and our schools from making progress in mind. Um, those systemic barriers uh, are, are multiple, and every time we identify one, we're working on tearing, tearing it down. Um, I'll give you a few examples if you want, just to demonstrate what I what I mean by that. Um, when it comes to our instructional work, the fact that we hadn't, uh, for years, committed to um, a common approach to curriculum and instruction, meaning uh, uh, instructional materials, instructional practices that are consistent across our schools. Um, when we privilege uh, individual, individual teachers' interest and choice over access to a guaranteed and viable curriculum for all children, um, I call that a systemic barrier. So we still want teachers to make great individual choices about children, but they have to be anchored to a common set of standards and a way to assess whether or not students are achieving those standards. Um, our approach to behavior, another great example of a systemic barrier. Um, for years, we had in place a code of conduct that was punitive, that was pushing um, black students and students with disabilities out of our schools. Um, and we've, we've changed that through the work of our strategic framework. And now we have a more restorative approach. Um, so there's plenty that we've been doing that have been keeping these these enormous achievement gaps in place for generations, um, and it's going to take some time to undo them. But it's not the school system alone. Um, this is a a, li a larger societal problem. When you we'll, we'll get in in depth with with the behavior education plan and, yeah. and the disciplinary changes. But what you do, when you talked a moment ago about the curriculum, is that where Common Core comes in? Yeah, yeah. We've taken full advantage of Common Core to help us create a more aligned and coherent approach to instruction. Um, the Common Core state standards don't um, uh, tell our teachers how to teach. They, right, there's no set of instructional materials that come with them. There's no... Um, there, there are no strict rules there, except they set a standard for what students ought to know and be able to do at the end of a particular grade level. And they help our, our teachers and our staff um, see how those skills and abilities should be building from grade to grade. Um, that's allowed us as a school district to create local tools and resources that better support and guide our teachers in making better instructional decisions every day. So what do you make of the political football that Common Core has now become? It drives me crazy. Um, I, uh, I understand it and, uh, you know, respect the debate, the, you know, the theoretical debate about who should have control over decision-making in education, local control, federal control, which is what I think that debate is really about. Um, unfortunately, it's schools and school districts that have gotten caught 
um, in the crosshairs, and it's created uh, an infuriatingly um, unstable environment for for us to do our best work, meaning the accountability system keeps changing, the, the, the testing environment keeps changing, um, and uh, it just creates a... A background of instability that is um, that's difficult. It's difficult in an already um, wonderful but difficult job. What don't the people who are punting and throwing this this football at mm-hmm. Common Core? What don't they understand about what Common Core is and what it isn't and what it's trying to accomplish? I think that. Um, or do they understand it and they're just using it for political <laughs> points? <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I don't give them know. the benefit of the doubt. What is it that they don't understand? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just what I said. I mean, I think there are so many rumors about um, Common Core uh, um, kind of uh, uh, restraining teachers somehow, or Common Core in and of itself um, being the reason that. Uh, Curricula are being narrowed in schools, right? Why there aren't as much access as the arts and world language and music and all the things that we think are wonderful. Those things are just not true. The Common Core state standards are not responsible um, for those uh, poor decisions. Um, those are different issues entirely. I think that people conflate um, issues of accountability and testing with the Common Core state standards, and those things need to be pulled apart. You, I think you used the phrase earlier in, in this part of the discussion, systemic oppression. Yeah. There was a there was a chart in the 1927 Madison School District report that showed it was a pie chart that showed that if you lived downtown and went to what was then just Madison High School, mm-hmm. and your parents were workers, uh, they worked in the factories or the artisans, you were more likely than not to not go to the university and to get a job at Oscar Mayer or some other factory. If you went to, um, uh, if you if you lived on the west side and, and had a parents who worked at the university or professionals, you were more likely to go to the university. Yeah. Carrying that forward to today, would it be safe to assume that part of the reason for the, the racial disparity, the racial achievement gap, is that if you had parents or grandparents who weren't allowed to go to a decent school or who weren't allowed to vote or who weren't allowed to own property, that you would have a lower educational attainment than the children of parents who did, who were able to have quality schools and participate in the economy? Are, are we still paying for slavery and Jim Crow? I think so. I mean, I, <laughs> look at the national debate that's happening right now about incarceration, right? I mean, that this is a direct result of... Um, you know, decades and decades of, of, of systemic oppression. And uh, not to use it as an excuse, right? I mean, we, it, it is our responsibility to identify those barriers and to do everything we can um, to tear them down. 88% of the teachers in the school district are white, 44% of the students. About 20% of the student population is black, about 3% of your teachers are black. How important is that a factor in the racial achievement gap? You know, I um, I personally believe, and I know that there's evidence that um, that good teachers cross racial lines, and that uh, you don't have to be the same 
don't you don't have to share the same racial background as the students you serve to, to teach them well. Like I, I I'm sure of that. Um, that said, I think it when students um, don't see examples of uh, teachers, and I'm talking about all students, not just students of color, when all students, including white students, don't see teachers from a variety of backgrounds, um, including their own, it, uh, you know, it, it sends a, a, a message to them about what's possible in their own lives. I think that um, it only helps for our staff to be diverse and better reflect the students' Um, in front of them um, and help students understand the multiple perspectives that human beings have on the world around them. You institute some changes where you can now consider external applicants uh, for open positions at the same time as internal applicants. Is that helping with minority recruitment and retention? Um, I think uh, we're hoping that it will. Um, we don't have that evidence yet. We've just instituted our new uh, screening and selection process for the first time this past spring, um, and uh, there, were, there was a lot of change. It was completely revamped. And I think in this first round, uh, we learned a lot about how we define um, high-quality candidates, right, candidates who have the competencies needed to, to serve our students well, um, and that was really our goal in this first round. Um, I think as we get into uh, uh, future years of screening and selection, um, dramatically improving our recruitment process is going to be key to filling the pool um, with diverse candidates and the work that we're doing to grow our own future teachers, both from um, uh, our existing staff as well as our student body itself, is going to be key to diversifying the workforce. That's the Tomorrow's Educators for Equity in, in Madison program. That's right. That is where we're going to pick it up. We're talking with Jen Sheetham. She is the superintendent of the Madison School District. You are watching the October 2015 episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. We'll be right back. You hope you, we hope you are, too. If I ride, I will know the way the trees smell after the rain. I will grow a heart so strong that hospitals will take Tuesdays off. If I ride uphill, I will eventually get to ride downhill. That's how it works. If I ride, my breath will fill the air instead of smoke and car exhaust. If I ride, road rage will turn into laughter. And I won't be a boy or a girl. I will just be a rider. If I ride, I will be strong. major legal fees, major fines, and steep insurance penalties. You could lose everything. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving. Because buzz driving is drunk driving.
Welcome back to the October 2015 episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm still Stu. You're still you. We are still talking about the state of the Madison Metropolitan School District with its superintendent, Jen Cheatham. Jen, when we broke, we were talking about some of the ways that you're going to try and address the disparity between the amount of minority students in the district and, and the teacher population, mm-hmm. representative of, of that population. Uh, you talked about recruitment and retention of existing teachers. There's also a program that you've put in place for the Teachers of Tomorrow, uh, Tomorrow's Educators for Equity in Madison team. Uh, explain how that's going to work and how long it's going to take before it bears fruit. Oh, geez. It's, it's, a, it's a long-term investment, that's for sure. Um, we, had, we conducted a study of our HR practices a couple of years ago now, and one of the questions we, um, we asked heading into the study was this question about diversity and how to um, create more of it among our teacher ranks in particular, uh, but not exclusively um, among the teacher ranks. And uh, the, result of the end result of that study was that if we simply relied on recruitment practices alone, we'd probably never get there. We might make some incremental progress and that the fastest way to diversifying was to grow our own, and that we couldn't just depend on growing our own employees, educational assistants, for example, into teachers, that we needed to think about um, recruiting our own students to, to expose them to the, um, the career pathway of becoming a teacher, um, to invite them, those interested in, in entering into an exploration of that career pathway, and then for those who wanted to continue on, to build a bridge to the university where they could become uh, licensed educators and then uh, continue to build that bridge back into the school district where they could become our employees. Um, These would be students who would understand the Madison context because they are born and raised in Madison, Um, and, uh, and students who we hoped would really um, uh, deeply understand and hold dear the value of excellence, high expectations, and equity for all students. Um, So that's how the program was born. Most of our teachers currently come from the UW, Madison, which is our partner in this work, um, the School of Education. So we teamed up with them, no pun intended, to uh, create this this program for our students to explore the profession, um, eventually become formally trained as teachers, and then come back to us. Um, The way we hope that it will work, and we're still working out some of the kinks, is that students will um, uh, attain scholarships to attend the school event, um, and they would be guaranteed employment um, when they come back to the district. So and not too bad. And right now there are 11 students. Is this the, the first char- cohort? The, char- the first cohort? Yeah, they're sophomores now. So we're talking, I don't know what that is off the top of my head, six or so years before um, they would even come back to us. but. I'll still be around here you, in six you, years, you I hope. That's my so? plan, okay. yes. Now, now, when you... And then they'll start flooding, yeah. right? One co- cohort after another. Now, you say the expectation is that they're going to come back here. 
Um, early on in your tenure, you actually poached someone from Chicago to, to come follow you to. Uh, I don't like to use the word poach, still, but yeah, there are a few people I actually recruited from Chicago. Now, how are you going to feel if, if Milwaukee comes and takes some of your teen scholars? I'll be and extremely <laughs> upset about it, and I'll be calling Darian Driver and giving her a piece of my mind. I, I, the the goal here is that students are going to be inspired to come back and serve um, in the community that they they're from. Um, and I think that's very attractive to to a lot of people. We talked in an earlier segment about, or mentioned in the earlier segment, the issue of students whose native language is not English. The most recent numbers show just under 7,500 students, up from 4,000 in 2005. That's an 85% increase in 10 years, represents 27% of the total student population come from family whose, whose native language is not English. Uh, you're proposing two major changes in how you teach these students, both increasing the number of elementary schools with a dual language immersion and changing the curriculum in those programs. Explain the philosophy behind those changes and the operations. Um, so I think there's actually more to this plan than what is described and what was in the paper. Okay. And I'll take my opportunity to try to explain it. That's what we're um, here for. The, the English language learner plan that we're proposing to our board is a comprehensive plan for how to better serve all English language learners, every single one of them. And um, not only do they represent a large percentage of our student population, but they represent almost 100 different languages spoken. Most people immediately think of our Spanish-speaking English language learners, which is, of course, the, you know, slight majority, um, a little over 50%, I think, are Spanish-speaking. But the second largest group is Hmong-speaking, and then we literally have dozens of other languages spoken um, across our district, and all sometimes within a single school. Um, and so this plan is about how do we improve services for all of those students. Um, it includes a much tighter approach to monitoring student progress, um, and engaging parents in good decision-making about the program model that's best for their child um, in terms of services. Um, it includes a much stronger approach to professional development for all staff, not just the staff that may be um, working in bilingual programs, but at this point, with 27% of our student population being ELLs, I mean, there are very few teachers that don't teach an English language learner. Um, and if they don't today, they will be tomorrow. And uh, we need all of our, our teachers to understand more about how to um, support students with language development in the classroom. Um, it does. It also includes uh, some some changes in how we uh, support English as a second language. Um, ESL services are generally provided for students that are in uh, kind of like low incidence languages um, as opposed to bilingual services. And, and the plan includes an expansion of our bilingual services, um, which is what you were referencing. We right now um, are not providing sufficient access to bilingual education for the students and families who need it and, of course, um, most likely want it. Um, uh, dual language immersion in particular, the research base shows is the um, most effective way of supporting students in becoming bilingual, 
um, by literate and bicultural. Um, and, uh, and that's why we've chosen dual language immersion as the, the model of bilingual education that we would like to expand. Um, we do have one other model called developmental bilingual education that we also um, utilize in a couple of schools. Um, Ex- so explain how DLI works. The way DLI works, it's a two-way um, immersion program where, generally speaking, about half of the classroom is uh, a Spanish-speaking English language learner, and the other half of the class is an English proficient, uh, is full of English proficient students who are Spanish language learners. So um, both groups are working um, on attaining a second language. Um, half of the group is working on attaining Spanish, the other half is working on attaining English. Um, and it's a wonderful model because students not only get to um, uh, learn across cultures, but they're they're not they're they're helping each other learn one another's language. Um, so that's generally how it works. And um, uh, the model that we did use uh, was a 90/10 model, meaning in the earliest grades, students were primarily being instructed in Spanish 90% of their day um, in Spanish, 10% in English. And then over the course of their elementary years, that would balance out to 50-50, 50% of their instruction in English, 50% in Spanish. What we're proposing in the ELL plan is that we change that model so that it starts with a 50-50 model from the very beginning. 50% of instruction in Spanish, 50% in English. Um, There are multiple reasons why we're proposing that change. The main reason is about staffing. Um, the 50-50 model is still a very good model that where the end result is students becoming bilingual, biliterate, bicultural. Um, but it helps us uh, with our challenges around recruitment of bilingual teachers. Um, in the 50-50 model, you need essentially half the number of bilingual teachers that you would need in the 90-10 model, in the early grades in particular. And it allows us to have um, instead a balance of, of teachers that have their ESL endorsement, which does not require that they are bilingual themselves. So, um, so those are the changes that are being proposed. Some expansion and the model changing. And, and participation is, is self-selected by the students or, or the students' families. Every English language learner um, in a school um, where DLI um, exists uh, has the right to be in that program because it is their, um, you know, they have have legal. Uh, we have legal obligations. They have legal rights to have access to that program. For the half of the class that is not an English learner, um, it is essentially a choice pro- program. There's a lottery, and students apply to become part of it. To the extent that. Learning how to speak Spanish and being immersed in another culture, another language, is something that high attainment families would understand the need for. White high attainment families. Yeah. Is, do you run the the risk of having a classroom that is uh, Spanish speaking and upper class white to the extent, and and therefore ending up with more non, ending up with more classrooms that are primarily black and Hmong and other non-white, non-Hispanic, yeah, uh, and having an inadvertent segregation developed that way. That is the risk. 
and um, and it's important that we address it, then we do address it very directly in the ELL plan. I say I don't mean to criticize uh, the initial efforts to implement DLI. Um, I don't mean to do this, but I don't think that there was enough thought put into this question um, early on about uh, recruitment of families um, into the DLI program. I think that uh, we're trying to address that through the ELL plan that's proposed now. How do we better get the word out about how um, effective this program is? I mean, the research base shows that that DLI is, is not only effective for English language learners, but it's effective for um, for all students, including African American students who may be enrolled in DLI. I mean, it helps them, um, uh, yeah, achieve in school. Um, it's highly effective. Um, so we need to help. Um, everyone be in the know so they can make better decisions about whether or not this program is appropriate for their child. That said, even with better recruitment, um, it, it is a choice program, which means that there always will be, um, uh, the demographics will look a little different depending on uh, the strand, the DLI or the non-DLI strand within a school um, in terms of uh, demographic group, uh, racial demographic group, special ed uh, status, free and reduced lunch status. And what we are obligated to do and what we're proposing in the plan is how do we ensure that every student is getting a great education. So um, the answer to this question is not to um, keep the DLI to, to, to not offer DLI because we're worried about um, the students in the non-DLI part of the school not getting a quality education. Rather, we should be asking ourselves, how do we make sure everyone is getting a high-quality education? Um, and that's what we're addressing in the, the new ELL plan that's being proposed. The, the children's family is obviously such an important component to this equation of, of their success. Yeah. Um, there's an extraordinary local organization, I'm, I know you're familiar with it, the Literacy Network, yeah. that does tremendous work with adult literacy efforts. Do you have any, is there any coordination between what you're doing with your language immersion and coordinating with, with the Lit Network and, and, and having the parents and the students proceed in some kind of corresponding track? You know, we, I don't think we've really taken advantage of that potential connection. You're actually making me think I need to reach out to them. If there is, it's not on my radar. Um, I, I think that's a wonderful idea. Well, you know, Jeff Burkhart's in Rotary with us. So I know. Go talk have, to Jeff. We can sit with him tomorrow at lunch <laughs> and, and figure this all out. Sounds good. Uh, on the matter of literacy, uh, you have something called the Reading Recovery Program. on what You've spent more than $5 million over the past six years for reading instruction for a couple hundred first graders uh, in 18 schools which receive federal Title I funding. Ten years ago, 56% of the students receiving the extra instruction could read and write at their grade level within four to five months. Last year, that was down to 38%. That's seven points below the state average and 17 points below the national average. Um, what's not working? Yeah, gosh, I, I mean, let's think about this. So reading recovery, we brought our evaluation, the one that you're citing, to our board sometime last year. Um, and 
I mean, obviously, it's not getting the results that it needs to get. I mean, bottom line. Um, and I think there's a, you know, multiple reasons why that is, is likely the case. There were a couple of schools that stood out um, in our analysis that had significantly better results than the rest of the schools, um, which had something to do with uh, implementation at their sites and how it was working. Um, and where we landed in the end was that we weren't going to um, eliminate the possibility of reading recovery in our district, um, that we were going to, uh, with um, guidance from the district, allow a school that wanted to com- continue with reading recovery, a school that's been getting good results. I mean, we don't want to stop a school from doing what is working, but we don't want them to continue things that aren't working. Um, so we've uh, provided that guidance. At this point, um, reading recovery doesn't have the same uh, uh, presence and stature that it maybe did at one point in our district. Um, and instead, we're working with every school to create a, a specific system of intervention that's unique to their school and their student population, which in some cases may include reading recovery, if it's appropriate. We've got just about a minute before we have to take a break. On, on the issue of, of low-income students, the district has recently um, provided uh, free uh, meals to all students, um, regardless of whether or not they qualify for the, 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 under the federal guidelines. Yeah. And you, you've expanded that to several new schools. Um, what's the theory behind that, that practice? I think generally... Um I mean, I think generally it's uh, first and foremost that when students are healthy and eating, <laughs> um, that's good for us. We want our students to be healthy. And uh, and uh, we were having some issues, and I, I know that this is true in other schools, where um, either kids uh, and parents weren't getting their free and reduced paperwork in, um, which was problematic, um, and uh, in some cases we had um, students who weren't able to essentially pay their bills, who um, were then getting stuck in these really difficult situations at school, where they um, where there were questions about how they were going to be fed. Um, I mean, this is just not what we want to be doing in school. We want every child to eat. We don't want to have to check who has their paperwork. Um, or not, it's just, it's just not the kind of um, loving, caring school environment that we have, we want to have for children. So I think that's the main motivation for us. We're going to take a break. It'll be a good time for you to go get a snack, but don't miss <laughs> these important announcements and hurry back because we have one more segment with Jen Cheatham, the superintendent of the Madison Metropolitan School District, on the October 2015 episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. This close. This close. To direct more death. This close to making history. Of one team We are this close. We are this close. This close to changing the world. We are this close to making sure no child suffers a crippling disease ever again. We are this close to making history. We are this close to ending polio. Because we are this close to ending polio. 
We are this close to ending polio. We are this close to changing the world. This close. All we need is you. Is you. Is you. Is you. We are this close. This close. Be a part of history at rotary.org slash end polio. Most people probably think, when it comes to horses, my passion is mainly for training and competition. But they're wrong. Growing up side by side with Australia's wildlife gave me a deep respect for every animal. And if I know my fans at all, I know you have the same passion for animals that I do. So I had to tell you about an organisation I believe in, one that makes a difference in the lives of animals all over the world, the Morris Animal Foundation. For more than 60 years, animal lovers like me have trusted Morris Animal Foundation to help animals worldwide enjoy longer, healthier lives. I am asking you to do the same. Visit morrisanimalfoundation.org to support animal health and welfare worldwide. Your gift today, mate, will give animals a healthier tomorrow. You and the animals you love will be glad you did. Welcome back to the October 2015 episode of Access City Hall on the Masson City Channel. I'm Stu Levitan. We're talking with Jen Cheatham, the superintendent of the Masson School District. And now we're going to get into an ongoing and somewhat contentious uh, issue, the behavior education plan, uh, the disciplinary plan under, under the Code of Conduct, yeah. limits the kind of violations of the district's Code of Conduct for which students may be suspended or expelled you have devoted, the district has devoted about $3.7 million on staff and resources to implement this plan. Includes at least one part-time teacher uh, or staff in every elementary school, mm -hmm. a full-time staff person in every middle school uh, to handle student behavior problems. What was the problem that this plan was designed to address? Um, the plan was designed to address uh, the um, zero tolerance approach that was um, what the former code of conduct was all about. Um, and the zero tolerance approach uh, overused, um, over relied on exclusionary practices, out of school suspensions, expulsions, um, and um, in disproportionately impacted African American boys. Um, in particular, and students with disabilities, and oftentimes uh, African American boys with disabilities, and um, and it's 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 interesting because I mean, we were disturbed enough about that, and the board was disturbed enough about that to want to take some action. Um, but that led us to doing a lot of research on what other districts are doing, um, and. Uh, and we are really part of a, a national movement um, to try to disrupt what some people call the school-to-prison pipeline, um, right? How do we um, not criminalize the behavior of African-American boys when oftentimes it's the same behavior that might um, come from another student but is just perceived very differently? Um, so that, that's the fundamental problem that we were trying to address. 
Um, and instead, we wanted to um, learn about the root cause of student behavior, um, to still hold high expectations for students and teach them the kind of scholarly behavior that they need to be successful in school and in life. Um, but when when misbehavior occurs, um, yeah, how do we how do we help students learn from it? How do we as adults learn from it? Because sometimes um, it's not just about what's happening with the student. It's sometimes because they're responding to something in their environment that we've created that needs to be addressed. Um, so we wanted to 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 learn how to be more reflective and responsive. Um, restore relationships so that people can move on with their lives. And, uh, yeah, it's been hard. It's been um, good, hard. We've learned a lot over this past year that is, has now been embedded in this year's um, iteration of that plan, um, which already is feeling like it's uh, having a positive effect. This is a difficult question to ask. Mm-hmm. Black students... Uh, comprise about a fifth of the school's population. They account for three-fifths of the out-of-school suspensions and expulsions. It would seem there can only be two explanations for that. One is that black students are committing serious offenses disproportionate to their number, or that the district is disciplining black students in a racially discriminatory manner. Neither of those answers, neither of those possibilities, neither of those (laughs) potential answers can give anybody any comfort. They can't. They can't. And, um, you know, in terms of what's happening nationally, uh, the research that uh, President Obama himself has recently been citing has really pointed towards um, this idea that we are, uh, we, we are doling out a harsher discipline for African-American students um, and that that, Maybe um, because of the implicit bias that we we and I, I when I say we I think it, it may be almost all of us carry around with us. Um, I mean it's it's almost inescapable. And uh, it's interesting. I was at a conference actually at the White House. The MMSD team got invited to the White House this past summer um, because of the work that we're doing on discipline to talk with uh, uh, leaders at the White House as well as other school districts about, you know, lessons that we're lear- learning. Um, and one, we, we heard from uh, an expert there, and I, I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head, um, but he was talking about how um, we often, with uh, students of color, African-American students in particular, um, we don't perceive that it's the student being bad on the first offense, right? The kid is just acting like kids kids do. Um, but as soon as there's a second offense, then the the onus, the blame gets placed on the child. And um, I, I do think that, uh, yeah, it, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but we, we have to face the fact that um, that we... We have to find opportunities for us to essentially press the pause button when we're making decisions um, in reaction to a student's misbehavior, any student, but especially an African-American student, um, to just double-check 
the the rationale, um, the facts of the situation before we make the decision about the punishment. Um, and 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 furthermore, um, we've got to start thinking about, and this is what the behavior education plan does is that this isn't just about doling out punishment. It's about making sure that any punishment is paired with an opportunity um, for intervention and restoration of relationships. That is absolutely key. Another statistic that I I can't interpret, and, and I'm hopeful you can, in the first three quarters of last school year, 2014 to 2015, suspensions were down by 32%. Uh, from 1762 to 1196, but the racial disparity actually increased with African-American students receiving 62% of all suspensions, up from 59%. What do you glean from that? I think we actually thought that that's what would happen in the beginning, um, based on what we've seen happen in other districts that have moved in a similar direction to a more restorative approach um, to discipline. They, too, saw dramatic drafts in suspensions, um, our final numbers actually came in at 42% decrease in out-of-school suspensions by the very end of the year. Um, that is 1,900 days of instruction that would have been lost, that were regained for students. Um, and about 1,200 of those days were days regained for African-American students. Um, but we also knew that it was unlikely that the disproportionality would change. I don't think yet. I don't think that um, it should be dismissed that um, that the the, the suspensions have dropped that um, dramatically. That means that more students and more students of color are um, getting the opportunity to um, restore relationships and, and, and be in school as full members of the community. That's important. We don't think that the disproportionality really changes until we start to get at this issue of implicit bias. And that is not a technical issue. That is a cultural, adaptive issue um, that will take time. The data also shows that middle school students are the ones with the most disciplinary issues. Sixth grade appears to be particularly bad. Is that because hormones are kicking in or because kids want to act tough? Or <laughs> what, what, is, what does the, the scholarship show as to why middle schools were the, the problems peaked? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you mention that because middle school is something that we have our eye on for multiple reasons. Um, I think that, I mean, middle school is a time where students as adolescents um, are... <sighs> You know, their 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 friends have a larger influence on them than um, kind of the traditional adults in their lives, their parents, and um, and they're they're learning to define themselves, which means pushing limits, testing limits, um, and uh, I think that's all part of it. I think that we um, have got to do some serious work as a district, and and again, I think this is beyond just Madison to really understand adolescence um, and the kind of uh, school environment that allows an adolescent to do the kind of learning that they need to do, not just on the academic side, but on the social-emotional side, um, because that's just a such a critical time for an adolescent in terms of um, defining who they are as people. Madison Teachers Incorporated did a survey of its membership last year. About 42% yeah. 
participated. Almost half said they thought the behavior education plan was not having a positive effect on behavior or on students' ability to learn. What do you say to your staff who think this isn't working? You know, gosh, um, I think that what I've said to staff who think that this isn't working is, um, I mean, really just trying to go back to the the why, right? Why are we trying to make this change? Um, and, and and learning how to partner with people to to problem solve towards solutions. Um, this has got to be a team effort. Every single um, instance uh, where when a child misbehaves from the the smallest incident to the larger incidents is is unique, right? To that classroom, that moment in time, that child, and um, and we need a more nuanced approach to making. Uh, uh, better decisions for supporting individual children. Um, I don't, uh, I, I tell everyone if, if there is a structural problem, if it's a financial problem, we, we're going to do everything we can to fix it. Um, and we have. I mean, we've made a lot of changes to not only the policy, but our professional development and the way we've resourced this plan. Um, but, uh, but I need teachers. To, um, to, to look internally. I need them to do their own work, too. We've got awesome teachers, and, and so many of them already do that. Um, but I just I, I need them to um, continue to look inside. I need everyone to be looking inside right now um, to better understand the possibility that they may be bringing a life experience to their decision-making that's um, different from the life experience of the students that they're serving. And um, we need to really understand all those perspectives. It's hard work. One element to the code of conduct is the dress code. Yeah. And you have the, the board, the district has recently adopted the policy, students may not wear clothing with words, pictures, or caricatures based on negative stereotypes of a specific gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, sexual orientation, or disability. Students may not wear shirts, hats, or other attire with Native American team names, logos, or mascots that depict negative stereotypes. Um, the one named team that you can't, uh, that a student can't wear is, is the Washington football team, which name we do not say on this, on this mm-hmm. show because it is racially um, derogatory. What was the genesis of, of this dress code? It came from our students. We have uh, this extraordinary body of student leaders called the Student Senate. And um, we had a, a, a group of uh, Native American students uh, who joined forces with our Student Senate um, and brought our administration and then in turn our board a proposal for changing the dress code um, specific to uh, uh, a potential ban on Native American mascots. Um, so that was the genesis. They uh, were a pretty amazing group of kids who did their research and made a strong proposal. What's going to happen if there's a team that you play athletically that, that has one of these mascots um, and, and their logo and, and their uniform. We haven't so figured that out completely. I mean, at this point, it's uh, very specific to our own student dress code. Um, the student proposal did include um, 
uh, a proposal about playing teams, um, but we haven't come to any consensus. And that I think that board policy is coming up sometime this year. So we'll address it when when the time is right. You referred earlier to the. We've just got about two minutes left. You referred to the uh, strategic framework of. of May, uh, impressive document. Priority area four is a thriving workforce, and you say you want to cultivate a work environment that attracts, develops, and retains top talent. We are in the midst of an ongoing assault on public education as a concept and teachers themselves, in addition to the budget cuts that have resulted in, in you're having to raise taxes to the maximum and still having to cut staff and, and programs. We've got just the thematic assault on public education and teachers. What has that done to staff morale, and how do you combat it? Um, it is, it's, been, it's been pretty devastating on staff morale over the years. Um, and, uh, but, I, but we are combating it, and, um, and we're Madison, so we like to do things our own way. Um, as you know, uh, not only are we uh, better supporting our teachers through better professional development than ever um, and all the things that are baked into our strategic framework, um, but we have uh, just recently gotten a, a proposal through the board for our employee handbook, which was developed collaboratively with our union partners. Um, I think that we are... Uh, probably one of a very, very small number of Wisconsin school districts that were able to create a handbook in the collaborative way that we have. I'm very proud of it. Um, we think it helps to um, create. If, if our state can't do it for us, then, then we have to become responsible for creating as much stability for our own employees right, as we possibly can, um, I'm hopeful that that will make Madison an even more attractive place for great teachers to want to come and work. Well, we will follow that as the days and school years develop. We appreciate Jen Cheatham, the superintendent of the Madison Metropolitan School District, taking the time to come in and give us an update on the district's activities, and we look forward to her coming back next year and, and doing the same. And for, the schools are tremendously important. If people want to get involved, they can madison.k12.wi.us. That's it. Madison.k12.wi.us. For everyone here at Madison City Channel and Access City Hall, I'm Stu Levitin. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.